Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. This sermon is part of a series called Trumpets and Seals, where we are preaching on Revelation chapters 4 through 11. One of the convictions that has led me to do this series at our church is that the book of Revelation is often a book that people are interested in, but fail to be impacted by. My hope is that this series will change that, at least for some people. With that in mind, I want to invite you to visit the webpage that corresponds with this series. It is wilsonville.church trumpets. On that page, you can watch the sermon videos, but more importantly, there is a respond button that makes it easy for you to reach out to us about the series. If a sermon in this series is impactful to you, I'd love you to reach out. Or maybe you have questions about one of the passages we preach on. Don't hesitate to click on that link and send your question to us. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, even for me, but I'll try my best to answer you. There's one more reason that I want you to visit wilsonville.church trumpets. I'm hoping to put a resource there that offers more insight into the details of the book of Revelation. Like I said, my focus in this series is to show people how God can impact their lives through the book, but I know there's a lot of stuff that interests people, and I want to provide something around that. That resource will be on wilsonville.church trumpets, so make sure to visit the site. Who knows? It might already be up when you hear this. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope it will be impactful. In fact, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I rode the school bus one time when I was a kid, just one time. Um, thankfully, I had grandparents who could get me to school after um, my dad specifically was at work, but I rode it one single day, and I think I just wanted to, maybe, you know, I was like, hey, what's happening on the bus? I was just interested, you know, like maybe uh, maybe all the the cool kids are on the bus, and I'm not, I don't know, but I, I rode this bus, and on that day, uh, it was apparently particularly rowdy on the bus, and and so the the bus driver he says to everybody in the bus, all of us included, he just says, "Hey, if this happens again, then all of you will get uh, pink slips or what? I don't remember what we call them, but you will all have this go on your permanent record, and Harvard will no longer be an option for you. You know, it will be the end of." of your lives as you know it. That's how I felt as an eight-year-old kid or whatever. And I went home and I was so frustrated and so mad and so scared. And I never rode the bus again, actually, because I didn't want uh, the pink slip. And, and here's what really bothered me about it. The thing that, that frustrated me the most was simply that I had not done anything wrong. And I hated the injustice of it all, that, that, I, was, that I was being grouped in with all of these other kids who were going crazy and and I if I remember correctly the bus driver had had said multiple times like hey be quieter and nobody would do it but I was just sitting there being quiet trying to figure out how you ride the bus to school in the morning you know and, and so that is what really bothered me that that he would threaten this punishment for me even when I hadn't done anything wrong I also uh, think about, as I think about that story, high school basketball, and uh, I was my coach's whipping boy for about a year and a half in high school. I, uh, I mean, no matter what happened, it seemed like he would turn and, and yell at me, and I'll never forget uh, one of the players on our team, he was high as a kite uh, at practice, and, 
and he throws this ball over my head. It's a little bit funny to me now. He throw, I mean, so far, Michael Jordan couldn't have caught this ball. And he throws it this far over my head, and my coach starts yelling at me because I don't catch it. And, and behind my coach is a, is a smiley other player who's high as a kite looking at me like, I know where I threw it, you know where I threw it, but you're the guy getting yelled at right now. And, and I for, just couldn't, in my senior year, it got to a point where I, I just was done. And I, in the middle of a tournament, we were at the coast, I was going to quit because I, for you know, over a year, no matter what happened, it was like, why are you yelling at me? Like, I, I don't I'm on the bench, coach. Like, what are you turning to me for? And, and so I, that night I uh, said, I'm quitting. And, and my teammates came to my defense and like, hey, to my coach, Chad's not a quitter. You got to have a conversation with him. And he did. To his credit, I sat in his hotel room with him and his wife. And we talked for like well over an hour about how I felt like a whipping boy. And here's the funny part of it is he said, well, you are. I'm like, oh, thanks. And he said, I just feel like I can yell at you and I'm not going to lose you. Um, and so I use you as an example. Like, I'm quitting right now. Like, you, you misjudged the situation here, coach. Uh, and from that moment on, I was no longer. But, but I hated the feeling of, of suffering the punishment of frankly, other people, you know, when I, now I did plenty wrong that I deserved to be yelled at for, and I've been yelled at lots in sports when I deserved it, but those moments, it was like, you're yelling at me when I don't actually deserve it, there was this injustice there, and I think all of us, we struggle with two things, whether personally or, you know, I think we feel it on a, on a, uh, a more global level, when, when people are punished for something they don't do, uh, it bothers us, right? Like we call foul. Or when people are just lumped into a mass punishment, then we also cry foul. We hate that. And last week we talked about this idea of, of God's punishment and how God will punish and how God does punish. And, and we saw in that story that that it, that it seemed like some of his punishments fell upon both uh, the righteous and the unrighteous. And it leaves us with that, that taste in our mouths, that feeling in our souls of injustice, that we don't like this. Like, just because I was on the bus doesn't mean I was doing what every other kid was doing. Or, hey, wait, it's their fault, so why are you blaming me? And the passage we're going to look at today, I think, I think it is in some ways God's God giving us an answer to that struggle within our souls. It's like we come along and, and we've read Revelation chapter 6 and, and now at the beginning of Revelation chapter 7 verses 1 through 8, we, we see an answer to like, hey, it's not fair, it doesn't feel fair that God would punish all of us together when it's only some who are opposing him and persecuting his people. And, and so with that in mind, uh, we are going to today look at Revelation 7, 1 through 8. But before we do, you need to know that it does answer a, a question. It deals with all these things I've said, but it answers this question that was posed at the end of Revelation 6. And it is, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The question is, who can withstand it? And Revelation 7 is going to answer that question for us. 
Now, what we want to do is like, again, and, and Revelation doesn't seem to do this, we want to go, well, how can God punish? And, you know, why would these things ever come upon the earth? But that is not at the heart of this passage. Instead, it's about who can stand. And it really, if I can say it more clearly, it's about the idea that God will protect his people from his punishment, even, even if bad things happen to them on earth. Now, here's what I, I think happens, uh, is that we oftentimes, we as modern American Christians, I think it's, it's a bit of an epidemic, actually, we want to soften parts of the Bible, right? And, and so we don't talk about these things like God's wrath. And, and so out of that comes like the question like, well, well does, is there any difference in being a person who chooses to serve Jesus. If bad things are ultimately going to happen to all of us in general, then, then where is my encouragement to live for Jesus, to serve Jesus? And, and we see it because the Bible pretty continually talks about and offers guidance and ideas about this thing that we struggle with. Why, why? Do good things happen to evil people? Now, we ask that in a very different way most of the time. We are like, why do bad things happen to good people? But the Bible, frankly, more often seems concerned with, with, with talking about why do, why do good things happen to people who seemingly are just rejecting God, you know, with 100% of their decisions? Like, why, why do good things happen there? And, and, and in this passage, we see all of this, I think, kind of coming together to say, Remember the point of the book of Revelation to say, keep serving Jesus even when it's hard. Keep serving Jesus even if it seems like you're going to get caught up on the bus and you know bad things are going to happen to you when you don't deserve them. Keep serving Jesus even when it's hard. And here's how it starts. Revelation 7, 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Simple answer to the question, who can stand? The answer is the servants of God. The servants of God can stand. And we're going to come back to that. I think that's a really important idea. We'll come back to it. But first, just notice that there's four angels at the four corners of the earth. Four is a number, biblically, that seems to symbolize the earth or the globe. And I think we would do well just to say that these four angels are coming from the north, east, south, and west. This isn't some theology about, you know, the flat earth or anything like that. It's a symbolic way of saying these angels are coming from the different parts of the world, north, south, east, west. Now, here's the other interesting part here. Wind in the Bible is so frequently connected to the movement of God. The wind comes, and it's as if God has shown up on the scene, and his purposes are beginning to be worked. And so, as you hear that, here, here we see that the punishment in chapter 6 is about to come on the people, and now here the wind shows up, and it's the first sign of mercy. God is showing up to, pre to prevent these punishments from falling on people, and it's an act of 
of mercy. In some ways, this passage is really a passage about the mercy of God on his servants. And so then this angel comes with a seal. Think of it like a a stamp or a signet ring. He's coming with God's seal to say, this is, I'm speaking on God's behalf. I'm coming from God. I have a message from God. And, And he's like, hey, don't start acting on these punishments yet. Now, I want you to notice one thing here, that God is called the living God. I think that's a really important idea. Uh, this term, this phrase is really a big part of, of, of what Scripture says about God, that He is alive and active, and it, it stands in contrast to the dead gods, the false gods that surrounded the Jewish people specifically, but even the early Christian people in Rome. And so when you look around and they're all worshiping these marble statues or these little idols, God wants to make clear that he is not that type of God. That's not what the Hebrew people meant when they talked about God. They meant something bigger. They meant something more alive. A God who is active, whose winds blow on the earth. That is what is meant by living God. This is a God who didn't just create us and wander off into oblivion and say, I hope everything goes well for you. This is a God who is alive and active on earth and frankly wants to have relationship with you. So this angel says, do not harm the land or the seas or the trees until, it's a really important thing, until God's servants have a seal on their foreheads. Now, I'll say a lot more about this at the end of my sermon because I think that, that this, this picture of a seal on God's people, God's servants, is so important and so valuable. And it, 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 to me, it, it touches on, on, frankly, a lot of just what's so good about being a Christian, a servant of God. Um, but I'll, I'm going to hold off on that and just give you the bullet points right now. I think that the seals point to three things. Authenticity, belonging and protection it's not super different than like uh, because i have kids in this age range it's not super different than a kid writing their name on their toy or their backpack this belongs to me you know this is mine i don't want you to touch it you know in the case of kids who are bigger than me in grade school if you do i'm gonna pound you you know like like this is mine keep your hands off don't touch it And that is the idea here behind this seal that gets placed on the foreheads. Now, let me just say that there are some out there that think that this is a literal seal that goes on a forehead. Uh, That's pretty rare in theological circles. Most people would take it as a symbol of God's protection and authenticity and or stamp of authenticity and his uh, and a sign of belonging. That it, This is meant to be taken symbolically. I am one of those people. Uh, I would also point out that later in the book of Revelation, we'll come back to this, obviously, as we work our way through, uh, that there is another seal, which is the sign uh, of those who worship the beast. And we'll talk about that as we move through the book. But here's the point of all of it. God wants to show that his people are authentic, they belong to him, and they have ultimate protection. I think this is the most specific part, ultimate protection from his punishment. Uh, We go, hey, how can you punish all of us alike? And God is saying, I'm not going to. 
just because you live on the earth and people oppose me and people hurt my people and maybe some of the, the hurt and the punishment that, that I levy will affect you, I promise that you will not be punished in the same way as those who stand against my purposes. And then we move to verses 4 through 8, and it says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Zo Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. I was in the middle of that, and I regretted that I had decided to read it all. Uh, you got the point. All the tribes of Israel are included, and there's 12,000, and there's this number, 144,000. I know the instant question, right? Who are the 144,000? And this one is a really hotly debated topic when it comes to the book of Revelation. We have some topics that are debated, and we have some that are hotly debated. And the first thing that I think is so important, and I think we'll miss the point if we don't know this. I've talked a lot about apocalyptic literature as we've moved through this, and one of the things that you know already if you've been around about apocalyptic literature is that one of its key characteristics is symbolism. And in the book of Revelation, and in apocalyptic literature in general, numbers are symbols. And we see that throughout the book. By the way, I should have mentioned this last week, but colors are also really symbolic. And so we read about the red horse and the white horse and the black horse and the pale horse. Those colors, we saw this, we talked about this. They're symbols, right? And now here we see this new introduction, at least for me, that numbers are also really symbolic in apocalyptic literature. That's so important. Now, if you missed last week's sermon, I'll just advertised for our church, but you, you need to, to listen to it. I think that's important. Wilsonville.church slash trumpets. Wilsonville.church slash trumpets. Go back and listen because I laid forth a lot of groundwork that is important for this sermon. But for today's purposes, we've already seen it, right? Number symbolic. Four corners of the earth. Does the earth literally have four corners? If you say yes, then let's have a conversation afterward. No, we're, we live on a globe, right? And, and so no, that number is meant to demonstrate something, the fullness of that. It's coming upon the whole earth. And now here it would seem that we should take 144,000 as symbolic. Now there are people who take this number literally. The Jehovah's Witness people most famously do this, right? And they believe that is a select few of Jehovah's Witness people that get to live in heaven and the rest of us are on this new earth, right? Um, but it's pretty rare to take this um, as literal. Some uh, more mainstream evangelical Christians do that and, uh, and, and I'll talk about all the different views, but, but some would say that it's like a select few of Christians, like 144,000. But again, this is a minority belief. Uh, most people, no matter what camp you fall in, as far as how you understand the book of Revelation, whether you see it as, as events in the future, events in the past, about no events at all, just teaching moral lessons, or about a timeline through human history, most people would say that this number is symbolic. And one of the reasons for that is the breakdown. 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. It's like 12 times 12 times 1,000. It seems to be showing us this 
complete kind of picture that it's representing all the tribes of Israel. It's not like a literal, it didn't say like, hey, 5,872 from the tribe of Benjamin, 4,828, 15,000. It didn't do that, right? Like it's seemingly a symbol for something or some people more accurately. By the way, some people who see this as literal, they look at the 144,000 virgins in the book of Revelation, which will come up in Revelation chapter 14. We'll get there, and they see that as symbolic. And so I find it disingenuous, honestly, to see one as symbolic and not the other, when clearly this seems to be um, using very known, very popular uh, Jewish numerology and, and the ways that the Bible has communicated. For example, right, like when we see 12, we've already seen this in the book of Revelation, it seems to represent God's people. We have the 12 uh, patriarchs of, of the Israelites. We have the 12 tribes of Israel. We have the 12 apostles, and even in the book of Revelation later, we have 12 gates where uh, it has the, the names of these tribes and people will enter in, God's people enter into the heavenly eternal kingdom through these 12 gates. And so it seems that it's put together, much like Matthew in his genealogy, and he uses seven, seven, seven generations, and he leaves out a bunch of generations because he's trying to tell a story, not give you a perfectly complete genealogy. And that's similar here. And by the way, the 12 tribes, we'll talk about this more, it's not actually accurate to the 12 tribes of Israel. I never would have picked that up on my own. I read that somewhere. But it's not even the 12 tribes of Israel, which again points to the symbolism of what's happening here. And so who are the 144,000? Preterists see it as the Jewish Christians who escaped the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Not exactly 144,000, but it's this group of Jewish Christians who avoided you know, the fall of Jerusalem. Historicists see it as symbolic of the entire church, but maybe if there's a specific period, it would be the time, you know, when Constantine, just before Constantine makes uh, Christianity the, the main, the key religion of the empire of Rome. And so maybe right in there. Futurists, again, are, are split on this issue. Some see it as Jews who are living during the end times, and others see it as Christians who are living during the final period before Jesus returns. And then idealists, they see it as representing Christians throughout history. And so here are really the, like the four key options, said more succinctly. People see them as Jewish Christians. People see them as a chosen remnant of Israel who has accepted Jesus. People see them as Jews who are grafted in and become Christians. Or people see them as a small number of the church chosen for their purity. Now, the question then is, does our choice matter? I'd say yes and no on this one. Um, I, I think that you would have guessed, if you've been around for the other sermons so far in this series, that I would say no, probably not. But I'd say here, yes and no. And, and our one reason for that is that many futurists, people that see this as an end times right before Jesus comes back or even after he's raptured his people into heaven, they see this as a really specific group of people who are, uh, who become Christians after Jesus has raptured his people in heaven. So for them, this is a really important part of their theology. You, you almost need this in the book of Revelation to explain everything that happens after it. I mean, how could Christians suffer if they've already been taken into heaven? Well, there's a group, this, this, these people would say, there's a group of people who have converted after, and it's represented in this 144,000. 
And so in that way, making a choice about this does matter. But as far as what we're going to learn for our souls, not so much. Not so much. Because the point here seems to be that God's people have ultimate protection from his punishment. And if you say, well, this is specifically people who have come to believe in Jesus after other Christians have gone up into heaven, well, the the principle is still the same. They have been uniquely protected by God. If you say this is representing the people right before Constantine, well, the same, same thing is true. Like they were, the point here, uniquely protected from God's punishment. That is what God wants us to hear. And so if it's about this specific group in the future, if you know the books, the Left Behind series, like if it's about that, the principle still is the same. God will not let you, if you're his servant, suffer the same punishment that will befall those who oppose him and persecute his people. It just won't happen for you. Now, as I say that, you have to know that the background of this is Ezekiel chapter 9. It's really important. And I said at the beginning of this series that the better you know the Old Testament, the more easily you will understand the book of Revelation and the symbols within it. That's just clear because it's, it's like just one giant use of the Old Testament language. And here we have Ezekiel Nine. And what takes place is so fascinating in Ezekiel 9. It's a, it's a story about mercy in some ways. God's punishment is going to come. God says, hey, I want you to mark my people, the faithful ones, so that they are not punished in the same way. Ezekiel 9.4, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Ezekiel 9.6, do not touch anyone who has the mark. Well, that sounds nice. It sounds like God's people will not be hurt when he levels punishment in any way. They'll never be hurt when he levels punishment. But then there's this this thing that I don't think any of us will really like, but it's just the reality of the story. Ezekiel 21, 3 through 4 talks about how in this great punishment, guess what happens? The righteous and the unrighteous die together. But I thought they were marked. I thought they were sealed, you know? I thought... It couldn't happen to them. I thought they couldn't be touched. And man, in Ezekiel 9, and I think maybe in our passage too, it doesn't seem to say that the point is that when God levels punishment upon this earth, you'll never be harmed or hurt by it. I don't like saying that, but that seems to not be the point. The point seems to be that ultimately, ultimately, you will be protected from the wrath of God. The ceiling doesn't mean that God's people will remain physically unharmed. The world will always, until Jesus comes back and takes us all, like there will always be, it seems, godly people who suffer from the bad things that transpire on earth. Even even when God, and it's not always the case, but even when God is the one saying, I want that punishment to take place. Bad things will happen to godly people, people who serve God. But ultimately we'll be protected from his punishment and God is making clear here that the righteous are not being judged. And there's a distinction there, right? I mean, the righteous aren't being judged. They might be hurt by the punishment, but they're not being judged. 
And we know, we know from other places in the Bible, we'll see pictures of this as we move through the book of Revelation, that even if we suffer death as God levels punishment upon this earth, for all those Christians who died in 70 AD, for those who might die at the hands of, of horrible leaders in the future before Jesus comes back, for all Christians who've ever lived, there are times when God levels punishment and his people suffer and maybe even die. But the picture we get is that they won't, they won't feel his punishment for eternity. They will be saved from his ultimate punishment even if they feel some of it while on earth and they were not being called guilty, they are not being judged unrighteous by God. Because the reality for those of us that are Christians is what? That we are made righteous through Jesus, not our works. I'm gonna talk more about our ceiling in a minute, but, but again, I wanna tell you that, that the tribes, it's not like a perfect list of the tribes. It's not the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and it's not in the right order. And the, and the first thing I'll say about that is Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, there are at least 18 different ways that the tribes are ordered. And so this, what I'm about to say, maybe, maybe not. I'll give you a maybe, maybe not. But I think, I think this is, seems true as I read it. Here, Reuben is not first. Who's first? Judah is first. Why? You might be able to guess this one. Because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion and the lamb of Judah. Listen to Revelation 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so what does John do? Is inspired by God to write this. He moves Jesus to the prominent place. He puts Jesus first in the recording of the tribes. It's as if even in the, the little smallest details, God wants us to remember that Jesus should be in the prominent place, place of our hearts. He should be at the center of the throne of our lives. And that is where you find him in this book. The one that we call the Lion and the Lamb, Jesus, is from the tribe of Judah, and so it's placed first. Now here's the other, you know, just weirder part. Um, Dan is missing. I know all you Dan fans out there, all you guys that are like, Dan's my favorite tribe. You just, you heard me read it and you're like, where'd he go, right? Like, what happened to old Dan? And, and, and uh, nobody really knows what happened to Dan, but there's some guesses like why Dan isn't here. And I'll just tell you what I think the best guess is. Dan was known for idolatry. They're like the tribe known for idolatry. And so in this, it almost seems, it almost seems that there is a warning for all of us. Hey, God is saying that you will not ultimately be judged and that you are protected from his punishment, even if you feel a little bit of it while you're on earth. But that's not true for every person. That's only true for the servants of God. It's only true for the people who throw down their idols and turn to the living God. It's only true for those who choose to accept Jesus as the savior of their lives and make him Lord, which he is whether you acknowledge it or not. One author of a commentary says this, the meaning is rather that in the awful calamities of the last days and doom of the world, the saints like the elect in Ezekiel's vision are to be saved from destruction and though they must suffer, many of them even unto death, they will finally be brought safe in safety out of the world and into the eternal kingdom. I know, 
what you'd rather have me say is none of you will ever be touched. None of you will ever be harmed, right? But that's not what's communicated here, and I will not apologize for God. He is saying that ultimately, if you are his servant, then you will be saved from his punishment. Uh, two more things really to say about that that I think are, uh, are really important to this passage is the first is that we're, the people who are saved are called servants of God. And I've already, I just alluded to this. It's, it's about throwing down our idols and worshiping, giving our lives to the true and living God. It's not just, and I think this is so important, about saying, well, I do believe that God is the Savior. It's about committing yourself to Him. And, and I think that modern Christianity can just get this so wrong because we want to make clear, and I want to make clear, we cannot work our way into a relationship with God, but then the cost of us making that so clear, which we should make clear, but the cost of that is that we sometimes just act like we can believe just as the demons who believe that Jesus is the Savior. Well, we're, like, we're good as long as we mentally assert that Christianity is better than the other religions, then we're good to go and we'll ultimately not be punished. But that is not what it's saying here. He uses Dan, I think, as a representation, but it calls us servants of God. We must be people who give our lives to God because of those things that I've already described we believe. We believe that Jesus came to earth and he suffered and died for our sins. We, we believe that all of us in our own way had turned to the idols of the world and the idols of our hearts. We had chosen in many ways to worship self over and above God. It started with Adam and Eve who said, you know, I want to be like God. Give me that bite of that fruit so that I can have his knowledge. And since then, each of us, we've, we've worshiped ourselves and the things of the world. But Jesus came down here to die, to conquer sin for those who might believe so that we might be brought back into a place where we give our lives to the living God. We become servants of the living God. We worship the living God once again and we make that the aim of our lives. And so here, the first thing that I'd say is that, man, if you're a Christian, you, you need to think of yourself as a servant of God. I know that's so subtle because we can use those things interchangeably, but, but not necessarily, right? Like, if you're a Christian, then your identity is one of a servant of God. You now recognize that you've been created for the service of the living God and you need to live accordingly. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you've never come to believe those things, you've never given your life to God, I would ask you to consider doing so because it's the only way that you have the promise of not suffering the ultimate punishment of God, the living one. There's this other, like, really beautiful thing that I think comes forth here. And that is just in this seal, like, I think it just so beautifully, as long as we take it as symbolic, which I do, I think it so beautifully illustrates, like, what we have as servants of God, even now. Like, before we get to heaven, like, what we have now. I mentioned authenticity, and, um, even if you think that this ceiling is just about the future and this has nothing to do with our lives right now, I would say that in Scripture, we're actually described as being sealed with the Holy Spirit when we become Christians. And so the application seems to be the same. Uh, Maddox, one of our high school students here, we had a conversation uh, two Sundays ago, and, and, 
and uh, we were talking about how do you know when you're in a, your, your relationship with God is good? How do you know it's good? And I said, you know what? Homework, Maddox. Like, you come back, you tell me next week. You get an answer to this question, you come back. And he did, and he gave me this great answer. And, and basically what he said, I'll try not to, to mess it up, but he said, it, it's when we see our lives aligning with the character and attributes of God. That's the sign of an authentic Christian. I love that answer. I think it's so good. And so as Christians, one of the great things about being a Christian in the here and now is that the seal, it makes us live differently. We get to produce the fruits of the Spirit, as it's said in Galatians. We have peace and joy and love and hope and faithfulness and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control that we couldn't have had apart from Christ. In the book of 2 Peter, it describes the divine nature that we can add to our faith goodness and to our goodness self-control and to our self-control godliness. And I think I skipped one, but, but we, we become different. And it's a sign of the authenticity of the faith that we have come to. But also we get belonging. The seal shows that we belong. I think this is such an underrated part of of, of Christianity and the way that we talk about it today. So often for so many people that call themselves Christians, it's like, what do you get from being a Christian? I get to go to heaven. That's true. You also get to belong. You get to belong to God. It describes it in terms of adoption, that God adopts us into his family, that he becomes our father. And man, he is a good father, a father that wants to bless us and take care of us and does and protects us. Like, we, we come into God's family, I know, and I, I say this every time I talk about God being a father, if you don't have a good dad, then it's harder for you maybe to understand how great that is, but I happen to have a good dad, and let me tell you, having a good dad means that somebody's always on your side, there's always somebody to talk to, there's always somebody to look to when you need advice, and you need an example, like, there's always somebody there for you, and we get that when we become Christians, but when we're adopted to God, guess what happens? We get a whole bunch of brothers and sisters, and it comes back to what we prayed for earlier, we can be part of a community community that goes way beyond like I'm a blazer fan or I like music you know like this is deeper this is like things of the soul we can talk about things with other Christians because there are brothers and sisters that we could not talk about with our co-workers like we get to belong to something that's that's so cool and so neat as Christians and we get protection I've said specifically in this passage it's talking about protection from ultimate punishment but we get protection that's even, you know, happening now, right? Like, we're protected from Satan. We're protected from all the things that uh, are trying to tear us down because God is working for our good in everything that we face. It says that. And then, as I said, we get protection for eternity. The Bible says that he who is in us, if we have become servants of God through Jesus, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And I, I like knowing that. I've clung to that at certain times in my life. Like, no matter how terrible or evil the world seems to become, God resides in me, and I am protected by him. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him. It's a good thing he's powerful because he couldn't make that promise if he wasn't powerful, right? But he's protecting us. And even when bad things come upon us, even when we suffer terrible tragedy, we have the protection, at least I find protection in this, of knowing that God will even take that and work it for my good. God promises to take every bad circumstance and turn it into something good for us, work it for our good. 
And then I'd say once more, we're protected for eternity. Read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 sometime, but there it describes the servants of God receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls, because God is taking care of us through it all. He upholds us with his righteous and mighty right hand to describe it in the language of Isaiah. God is protecting his people. And so what should we do? Become a servant of God. Become a servant of God. And I don't mean, I don't mean just like this Czech Christian, you know, on a on the next census and think you believe these things, but but like like believe them and then make a decision that you are going to cast down the idols in your life and worship the one true and holy God. Be one of those hundred and forty four thousand. Don't be a Dan. I'm sick of people saying, don't be a Chad. So don't be a Dan, you know? Uh, like, like, worship God with your life. Become a Christian. And if you are, start to think of yourself as a servant of God and not somebody who just prayed a prayer some point in your life and believed some things. And if you are a servant of God, I just want to remind you of the point of all of this. It's so easy, isn't it, to look around and say, those people seem to hate God. They publicly hate God. But yeah, look, they can pay their bills and I can't. Or, or, man, it looks like everybody likes them, but I don't feel like I have any people in my life that like me. Or, man, everybody respects them, but I don't have any respect. Or, look how famous they are. You know, look how well things go for them. It never seems like their kids cry. You know, like, I mean, we can look around and say, I can't, how? It just seems so backwards that people who hate God, and I'm over here trying to serve him, it seems so backwards. And in those moments, this week and for the rest of your life, I hope that you'll even think, well, the book of Revelation reminds me that no matter what comes, no matter how bad life gets, I am sealed. And so I can recognize my authenticity and my belonging and my ultimate protection from the punishment of God. Let me pray that you'll remember that. Lord Jesus, I thank you uh, for first the book of Revelation, all the things that it teaches us, Lord. And I, I love that it, it is such a compelling reminder, God, to us to keep serving you, to keep being your servants, even when it gets really hard, because it is hard, God. It's so frequently just difficult, Lord, to serve you when when we look around and see other people who don't having better lives than us or or when it doesn't seem like god we can see the work that you're doing like it, it just can be very difficult and god is as i've said in this series lord it, it seems uh, that both opposition from the outside towards you and your people is growing and, and yet and at the same time, God, there's a greater rejection of, of your truth in the church, Lord. But I pray that we would be reminded, God, that if we are your servants, then we are sealed. And if we are sealed, Lord, there's great benefit. There's the benefit of being able to live differently. There's the benefit of belonging to you. And ultimately, Lord, there's the benefit of knowing we are protected from your punishment, Lord. And it might not be the passage of Scripture that, as I said before, we hang on our walls but it's such an important part of, of theology to remember, Lord, who we are in you and what we have to look forward to. 
the ultimate protection from punishment. I pray that we would remember it and it would compel us to, to live every day as your servants, God, casting down our idols and worshiping you and you alone. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.